Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I'll tell you, we look like a convention of bank robbers. This is uh, great. We've got our mask on and uh, it looks like we're ready for business. Greg, does this thing come up? Either that or I need some shrinking. Here we go. I see it down here now. It's the gas pedal. Right. Okay. Wonderful. How's that? All right. Yeah. Right. Good. Well, it's good to see you. I'll tell you what, if you're not at Glasgow Baptist Church this morning, you're missing a good Methodist revival. We all got sprinkled coming in. I'll tell you, it was a great thing. And uh, you've made an effort to get here today, and that is wonderful. I tell you, if you're listening and you're not at Glasgow Baptist Church, uh, you ought to be. And I'm talking about people who don't usually come to Glasgow Baptist Church. I want to tell you that we welcome you. We want you to be here. We've got a group of loving people, and people, I think, that are committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. And this would be a wonderful place for you to be and to be a part of... uh, of our service and our commitment to Christ and to be with us. It would just be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, I'll tell you, as is my custom, I want us to stand together. I want to stand with you. I don't want to stand above you. I want to stand as one uh, who is uh, the servant of the Lord among you. And I want us to stand together. I want to, us to ask God to bless us in this hour. Thank you, Greg, for leading us thus far. As much as anybody I know, this guy in our worship team proclaims my message before I ever get started. I'll tell you, it's a wonderful thing uh, when you've got a team like that and Brother Greg to lead us to the throne of grace in such a spiritual way. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, uh, I'm nothing. We are nothing except to what you have called us to do and given us purpose in this life. Now, I know that you've made us something, Lord. I know you've given us tasks to do in this world and to serve you, and I thank you for that. But standing here today, as we stand before your word as it's preached, and before your word as it's read and sung, we understand, Lord, that we are nothing but for your grace and your power and your saving capacity in our lives. We thank you for it. Bless us as we hear your word this morning. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you. I want to read an article to you that hit me hard this week. Uh, it's an article from, uh, by Travis Lawler, the Associated Press. The title of the article is Southern Baptists See 2% Membership Drop. This is from last year. Nashville, Tennessee is the date line. The nation's largest Protestant denomination is, is 2% smaller than it was in 2018. The Southern Baptist Convention released its 2019 membership numbers on Thursday, showing a membership decline of more than uh, 287,000. That brings its total membership down from 14.8 million in 2018 to 14.5 million last year. It was the 13th straight year of decline and the largest single year drop in more than a century, according to the denomination. 
The decline the Southern Baptists are experiencing is consistent, consistent with national trends that we've been seeing for a while now, mainly driven by gen generational differences, said Mark Chavez, a professor at Duke University and the director of the National Congregation Study. Younger people, he says, are less likely than older people to attend religious services and to be religious. That's true across the board, end quote. The denomination also reported a drop of more than 11,000 baptisms over the same period with 235,748 performed in 2019. Baptisms are an important measure of the Nashville-based denomination because of its strong commitment in evangelism. Southern, the Southern Baptist Executive Committee's Ronnie Floyd said in a statement that, quote, it's clear that change is imperative. We have, we have to prioritize reaching every person with the gospel of Jesus Christ in every town, every city, every state, and every nation. And then we skip uh, a statistical deal here in our next paragraph. Ed Seltzer directs the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. He said it might help slow the membership decline if leaders were able to stop the constant infighting that is driving away the next generation of leaders and leaders of color. The denomination has seen turmoil in recent years with some older conservative leaders denouncing what they claim is a liberal drift among younger leaders. Earlier this year, some of those upset with the denomination's direction formed a new group called the Conservative Baptist Network. Around the same time, the denomination's executive committee said it was forming a task force to examine the activities of the Southern Baptist Convention's public policy arm led by Russell Moore, a past critic of President Trump. The committee also demanded that the president of the group's annual pastors' conference make changes to speaker's roster that included Southern Baptists with, and a female teaching pastor. Southern Baptists do not endorse female pastors. Seltzer formally presided over the Southern Baptist Convention's annual church reporting more than a decade ago when, the, when he first started warning that the denomination's membership was going to decline year after year many Southern Baptists dismissed his numbers. Once the trend became irrefutable, they were alarmed. Now, he said, I do think Southern Baptists are becoming used to decline. That should not be normal. It should be cause for great concern and change. That was just June 6, 2020. When I read that article, I said, my God, my God, my God, used, used to decline. I was born in December of 1952. My earliest <clears throat> memories of the First Baptist Church of Blueford, Illinois was sometime before I was two years old. Vivid memories of being there. You say, how come they're vivid? Because they wanted me to stay in the nursery 
And I was always a runner, and I wasn't going to be away from my mother. And I'll tell you what, I remember the trauma of looking for my opportunity and leaving that nursery and up those basement stairs and into the auditorium with my little worshipful arms in the air looking for my mom. I wasn't going to be separated from her. And they were behind me. That wasn't very missional, was it? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it was heartfelt. I'll tell you that right now. That's my association. And then... Here was my impression of the First Baptist Church. Of now nearly four generations, they had in their heart a burning desire to see lost people in Blueford, Illinois come to Christ. It wasn't just a missional statement. It wasn't just something that they thought about and sung about and tipped their hat at. It was a thing that they brought into every Sunday school class with Arthur's uh, Flake's five principles to try to win lost people through Sunday school. And they prayed for them by name. Prayer meeting it was called at that time. I'm not saying we do these things today, but I'm saying in their hearts, it was in their church, in prayer meeting, they prayed for lost people by name and said, who has talked to them lately or who might see them this week that we might pray in that way? My impression all through my growing up years that the greatest mission of the church was that we individually take the responsibility seriously to tell people individually in our communities, and yes, throughout the world, which most of us weren't going to go throughout the world, but to tell people throughout the world, but specifically in our community, by name, we tell people about Jesus Christ. And that's why, by the time it came to a million more in 54, that was an achievable a goal because we wanted to see a million more people come to Jesus Christ through personal faith in Jesus Christ by our personal testimony to him. I had a front row seat to witness that. We weren't perfect, by the way. There are a lot of things we did wrong, but I'll tell you that's one thing that I knew growing up in a Southern Baptist church was primary. Brother, am I right? Yes. 1979, or the mid-70s through 1979, I was at Southern Seminary. And I had a front row seat to what became the conservative resurgence. Now you understand I'm pretty adept at what goes on in Baptist life because my mom and dad ran two things at the breakfast table, the supper table, and the dinner table. And that was they talked about the First Baptist Church of Blueford, Illinois, and they talked about the Illinois Central Railroad. And so when I saw what was happening in uh, the late 70s in terms of our conservative resurgence, the fundamentalists became conservatives, the conservatives became liberals, and we began to do and fight a cultural battle for, we called it, the soul of America. Sounds evangelistic. Certainly well-meaning. But what I noticed, and a lot of us Baptist boys that were at the seminary at that time, as we watched that unfold on campus with a Bible conference, with a this thing, and leaders from each side came in, that there was a shift that was going to occur. We were going to move from a personal sense of great 
desire and soul winning on our lives to try to convert the whole culture. Not a bad thing. Something we've always done as Baptists is speak truth to our culture, but now we were going to use in the Southern Baptist Convention and we were going to address the world of politics. We were going to do that and we were going to use the methods of secular politics to change our convention and to change our world. And I thought then, what happens to personal evangelism and all that? You know, once you kill everybody and bloodlet everybody, how many people are going to want to come to your church? I said then, as I said this week, my God, my God, what are we doing? The world's going to hell on our sled, and we're not even winning our own kids. And we lose half of them when they go to college. God's Word speaks to our hearts. Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, and beginning with the first verse. First verse, Ezekiel 33. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, let me, let me set this up first. I think understand the context is good. We're not the only people that's faced a cultural change. Ezekiel is writing to people of the southern kingdom who have been carried away into Babylon. They've been carried away because there was a time of apostasy. Ezekiel, or Ezekiel, Israel was, uh, the region was like a dumbbell. They had two powers. Up here was Assyria, down here was Egypt. And the last days of Israel was always trying to balance itself between those, those political powers to find favor. Well, they kind of got favor with uh, Assyria, with Babylon, if you will. But what happened was the king that came, he decided he would also try to play his cards behind his back and he was also going to make an alliance with Egypt. And when the Assyrian king found that out, he came into, he came into not Israel, he came into Judea and he destroyed the temple. And he carried the people away to Babylon. Read in the Old Testament how they felt when they no longer had their temple, when they no longer had their culture. I understand growing up in the 50s what our Southern Baptist leaders are talking about when they see the culture change all around us. I understand when you look far down the road and you say, what will we become? What will our families be? What will our education system be like? What will it be? What will it be? I'll tell you what, the children of Israel in that day, they knew what it would be because they found themselves in a totally pagan situation. Unfortunately, it was of their own doing. Because God had said, rely on me, you don't need a king. They said, we want a king. Some of the kings were good, some were bad. They didn't rely on God. They had no personal relationship with him. And finally, the mistakes of one person drew them into utter devastation and cultural ruin, and they found themselves in a foreign land. 
Ezekiel, believe it or not, comes to speak hope to them. And he says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does uh, not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. Verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he didn't take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees a sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, He's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand of all things. Now as for you, son of man, I've appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give it uh, them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you'll surely die, and you don't speak to warn the wicked man from his way, what make it, uh, that wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand of all things. My God. My God. But if you, on your part, verse 9, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he doesn't turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your life. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. You've heard that in the New Testament, haven't you? Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression, and as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, He will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of, of his, which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statute which ensure a life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, he surely shall live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right when it is their own way that is not right. 
When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he will die in it. But when the wicked man turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right, O house of Israel. I will judge each of you according to his ways. Now it is absolutely astounding to me that taking the context of what Ezekiel is saying, that a watchman would be on the wall, that he would see the approaching army coming, which is a metaphor for the judgment of God coming, and he would not blow the horn. A whole message, I think, on all of the excuses that he might do and all of the good reasons that he might be distracted and so forth from blowing the horn. But it is just at the face value of it, it's very interesting to say the possibility that somebody might be there to appoint it and sit by his people to give testimony to the fact of what God is saying and what is happening in the life, and then not do that thing. What's the problem? We're appointed. We're appointed not to blow the horn of judgment, but in the New Testament sense, we're appointed with a positive message. We're appointed with a message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come into this world, that he is God himself, that his, his sacrifice on the cross pays the price for our sins, victory in his resurrection over death, hell, and the grave, the most relevant message, the most needed message that is possibly there by members of your family and mine and members uh, of our community and our neighbors. Well, so it's not so hard to understand that we haven't told them. And so maybe we are in ourselves the kind of people that will stand and not blow the horn. But we can't get away from the fact we have an appointment. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've got a testimony. That testimony is one that God has given you from bringing you out of your own darkness to your own light. And what do we say? After that appointment is made and after we've experienced salvation and have been brought to life from death and from darkness to light, we say, well, you don't understand, preacher. You don't understand, God. I've got stuff in my life that really mars my testimony. I, I'm just not good enough. I'm not the kind of person you should appoint. Well, that's biblical. Moses said it. A lot of people have said it have been called by God, but you find out that after they try to argue with God about that, it doesn't work. Because God knows them. He knows who they are, and he's got an assignment for them. Well, let me ask you something, and this gets back to this gets back to my upbringing in the Baptist church. We used to call it repentance. We changed it sometime in the early 70s to rededication. That sounded more civilized. You rededicate your life. But we used to call it, preacher, we used to say you need to repent. And we used to say the, offers, the altar is open. You may need to come this morning talking to church members, and you may need to lay your heart upon this altar and repent of your sin. It possibly meant that you may need to stand and confess, but probably not. But you did need to come and say in a humble way, God, I'm wrong. I need to get things right. I've got to get back on mission here. 
What besetting sin do you have in your life, church? What is it that addiction that you may have that cannot be laid at the feet of Jesus' cross who he paid the price for so that you might be the witness that he wants you to be? Well, let me tell you something. Nobody would have signed the Apostle Paul up for a witnessing class. I can tell you that right now. Nobody would have. He was killing some Christians. He was throwing the rest in prison. He was breathing fire everywhere he went to try to disrupt the movement of Jesus Christ and destroy the Christian church in his day. He didn't want his culture to change. When I sooner to preach, in 1970 or 71, Frank Brookman was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Bluford, Illinois. Frank left there, he went to Benton, he left there and went somewhere else. In my young preaching career, Frank called me to preach some weekend revivals at his church, youth revivals. I've been with Frank in witnessing, in going from house to house and witnessing uh, in his ministry and in the community in which he was pastoring then, not in Blueford, not around Mount Vernon where he grew up. And we'd go in a house for in Benton, for instance, which would be like from here to Elizabethtown. And we went in a house and he said to this guy, I'm Frank Brookman. I'm the pastor at East Benton Baptist Church. I've got with me Mike Thomason. Uh, he's preaching a youth revival. We wanted you to come and be a part of this. Are, are you saved? Are you a member of any church somewhere? He said, you're Frank Brookman? This happened to me more than once, by the way, not in Benton, but in other places he was at. The guy said to him, you're Frank Brookman? Are you the Frank Brookman that was Lefty Brookman that played ball for the Mount Vernon Kings, the pitcher that played ball for the Mount Vernon Kings in the late 40s and early 50s? Are you that Frank Brookman? He said, yes, I'm Lefty Brookman. And the people would say, I cannot believe. They were incredulous. They weren't happy. They were incredulous. I can't believe that you're a Christian. And you're a pastor. I cannot believe it. Because let me tell you something, like the Apostle Paul, Lefty Brookman, who was the fantastic ball player, the miners, recruiters, he knew them all. You know, every team like Glasgow had a county team and they played each other and it was a big deal. It was a recruiting thing. He knew all the recruiters from the majors. He was drinking with them. He knew the recruiters and come and talk to him and want him to be a part of the organization from the St. Louis Cardinals. He was a crackerjack left-handed pitcher. But he was a drunk his son, who went into the ministry and became our pastor also, would talk about his dad going out on the weekends and getting paid on Friday night, and his mother was home, and the kids were home trying to pay the bills. And by Monday morning, when Frank finally came back into the house from playing ball and doing whatever he was doing all weekend at every honky-tonk in, in Mount Vernon, there wouldn't be any money left to pay the bills. And the position that that situation left him in and left his mother in and left his family in in his life to live with that shame. Frank Brookman got saved. And I want to tell you, when he got saved, all of that changed. There were pastors that came to our church because Frank didn't care to ask anybody, big or small, if he liked the way they preached. He'd ask them to come to little old First Baptist Church in Bluford, Illinois. He had asked them to come. And I'll tell you, I've seen some pretty big names in the Southern Baptist Convention come, and they'd visit with Frank on the field. And I've heard them say time after time, 
I'll tell you what, I've been visiting with your pastor, and let me tell you, he is the greatest personal soul winner I have ever seen in my life. Oh, you say, preacher, I don't have Frank Bruckman's kind of, I never heard him give his testimony that he was a drunk and saved. Never heard him. He went in and had a way to talk to people about Jesus, who he knew personally. And he wanted them to know Jesus Christ. I'm sure, and I don't remember what he said, did he talk to that guy about his conversion that day? Frank was a guy who nobody believed, and those who knew him would have said, you can't possibly be a Christian. You can't possibly be this. But he was. And only by the power of God, and that power is what we proclaim and have been called to do. The most concerning implication of Ezekiel's warning is one of accountability. If they die in their iniquity, I will require their blood at your hands. I'll tell you what, I've thought about that ever since I've ever read that or ever since I've ever preached on it, and what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what, it'll be a sad day when we go before the judgment throne of God and we try to bring what we've done to Him, our Sunday school pedigree and all our Sunday school pens and our RA pens and all of this stuff that we've done and we've sang and we've done this and we've served and all our Bible school certificates and we bring it before the Lord. And He says to us, let me tell you what I'm really interested in. There's this name, this name, this name, this name, this name, this name that I saved you to testify to and were you here last Wednesday? Because they went to hell. Now at that point, if God is true to his word, what does he say to you and me? And how tragic will it be? Oh, no tears in heaven. I tell you what, I think there's going to be a lot of us weeping when we stand before God and we realize what we didn't do for him that he saved us specifically to do. And there was that nudge up in our heart that we ought to be doing it. And we did not do it. And most of the time the nudge is, you need to tell that person about Jesus. You need to testify to them about who he is. You need to give your testimony to them. You need to share a word with them about what it is that Jesus is, who he is, and what he can do in their life. Now, so much of Ezekiel 33 is right in the New Testament, and I think we get to this your blood I will require at their hand. I think it's there, Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Say by grace, not by works. I think Brother James, the brother of Jesus, got it right when he preached that sermon in the New Testament church in Jerusalem and recorded as the book of James, you show me your faith by your works. And if the main mission of Jesus Christ was to come into this world, not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. If God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, then the will of God is that we win our world to Christ. Whatever else battle we fight out here, the mission of our heart and the well of water that springs up into everlasting life within us is to bring others into the fold of Christ, to bring a lost world to the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
I'll tell you, we fought the forces of alcohol forever in our life, but I'm going to tell you, Lefty Brookman wasn't one because of a temperance campaign in Mount Vernon, Illinois. He was one, and I have heard his testimony about that because somebody came to him and told him about Jesus Christ, and he realized because the Holy Spirit convicted him that he was lost, that he had sinned against God and needed to be saved, and Jesus was the Savior. Do all you want with temperance. We fought, you know, you look at the history. We fought and fought and fought for 60, 70 years to get alcohol uh, outlawed. Finally made it. Was it, uh, what, 1919, I believe? Finally got prohibition on the books. Fourteen years later, the whole country voted to take it off the books and take that ratification out of the Constitution. Well, you're going to fight your battles and culture. They need to be fought. We need to speak truth. But any battle you're fighting today, you realize that the vote you take today can be voted differently as long as we live in a nation where people can vote and can worship and proclaim and can say any of you they want to and stand in public and say it, that they can vote to tear it down. Frank Brookman wasn't saved for just 14 years. He had a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's our message today? Quit doing what you're doing. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you we got the wrong spirit in the Southern Baptist Convention. We say the right things. But I'm afraid that we're becoming in traditional churches like the guys were who God gave the talents. And he gave one so many and another so many and they went out and vested theirs and when he came back, the judge came back, he said, look, you gave us this many, now we're giving you this many more. We're giving you this many more. And what did the one guy do? He took what the master had given him, he took what the landowner had given him and he took it and buried it. And I'm going to tell you something, that's what we do with our salvation. We bury it. We do the easy thing. Vote right, get on Facebook and rip people who are going to get an abortion, another one, and rip gay people and do this and that. Oh, that's a great testimony for your church. I'll tell you what God wants us to do. When he got back and he told that one guy, you didn't do anything with your talents but bury them. I'm going to give what you had to somebody else. He was pretty angry. Jesus said, here's what I'm looking for, fellas. The fields are white and the harpist. I'm looking for laborers that will go in and reap. Who's going to do the convicting God? Who's going to do the convincing the Holy Spirit is? Who's going to tell people who Jesus is? The Holy Spirit is and convince them that your testimony, big or small, weak or strong, that you're testifying about the truth and the truth will set them free. Tell you what, here's the song we need to sing. Not right now, I know what we're going to sing, I'm all for it. But here it is. I can hear the First Baptist Church at Blueford sing this song and they mean it. 
not for the foreign mission board and the home mission board, but they need it for them in their own lives. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Wafted on the rolling tide, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Tell to sinners far and wide, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing ye islands of the sea, echo back ye ocean caves. Earth shall keep her jubilee. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. This is not an evangelistic message. But God may be speaking to you about your need to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. We pray that you may do that even in this service. We pray that you may call or text the church and tell them of your need. We'll be glad to talk with you. You may be here this morning. And what you need to do in your seat or here in this altar is simply to say, Oh God, focus my life on telling people in my world that you love about you. Really great.